Father, as we have observed what our Savior told us to observe coming to his table, how great we see you to be, how great we see your salvation to be for us. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you for the tremendous blessing that scripture is, that we have your will and your way revealed for us in a perfect book, a divine book, a book that was authored by God the Holy Spirit through 40 different authors over 1,500 years of time, and yet as continuity does not contradict itself, has one storyline, the wonderful plot of redemption, that you would step across the gulf that we created by our sins in the person of your Son and make reconciliation possible, adoption Then, Lord, when you've placed us back into that fellowship with you that we enjoy as your redeemed children, you even grace us with the Holy Spirit of God, that the author of the scriptures would come to make home in each of our hearts is a staggering and beautiful truth. And now, Father, as we come to Romans 8 and all of the beautiful benefits therein, for the believer in Christ who is the home of the Holy Spirit. Help me to teach this, Lord, in as clear a way as you have revealed it in your word, to the good of your people and to the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name together. Amen. This morning we were in the first 17 verses of Romans 8, and sanctification's key was found to be the Holy Spirit-centered life. And this evening, I have the great privilege of finishing chapter 8 with you and considering interpreting suffering. Interpreting suffering. Sometimes God's love almost seems like hatred because of the difficulties he allows to come our way. The final result, however, always confirms its true nature. That was a quote from a pastor named Lud Goals. Have you ever felt that way? Or could you be feeling that way tonight? That God's love almost seems like hatred because of the difficulties he allows? This side of heaven, when we still have surgeons and funeral directors, we really need to know how we ought to interpret our suffering. Bill Bryan knows about God-allowed difficulties, big ones. When Billy Bryan was four years old, he went with his mommy to visit his daddy who was in a psychiatric hospital. Shortly after that visit and after his mommy promising him that his daddy would be fine, Billy's daddy killed himself by running through the hospital's sixth floor plate glass window at the end of the hall. What's to be done with that kind of suffering? How should that kind of suffering be interpreted? I'll tell you at the end of this sermon But sometimes, if we're honest, I think that God's love for us can almost seem like a hatred, but it isn't. 
And how do we know so? We know so by Scripture. We know so by God's Word, and we know so by the Bible. That's how we know so. And tonight's passage is perhaps the most classic passage of all of the Bible on interpreting suffering. So if you haven't done so already, please turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to begin looking at the chapter at verse 18 with you this evening. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18, and verses 18 to 30 will be our focus in these minutes together. Of course, suffering came onto the scene in the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve disobeyed God, there was no suffering, none. But since Adam and Eve sinned, every single human being except Jesus Christ has sinned. And because Adam and Eve suffered, every single human being since Adam and Eve have suffered, including the Lord Jesus, no exceptions. And the verses before us this evening give us three helps to cope with our sufferings. I want to overview the three helps first, and then we'll look at them one by one. First, we can take comfort in the sure prospect of glory. That's verses 18 to 25. Second, we can take comfort in the sure intercessory prayer of the Holy Spirit for us. That's verses 26 and 27. And third, we can take comfort in the sure providence of God. That's verses 28 through 30. So let me begin by reading the passage with you. Let's give our attention to God's word. Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We thank God for his word again this evening. 
The first point in this passage is, Roman numeral one in your outlines, when we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure prospect of glory. When we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure prospect of glory. Now, under that truth, there are three things we ought to realize. Number one, we should realize that our personal present sufferings are far outweighed by our future rewards. We should realize that our present sufferings are far outweighed by our future rewards. I see that truth in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we should realize that our present sufferings are far outweighed by our future rewards. On the left side of the scale, we have 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. May I interject? They stopped at 39 lashes because the 40th lash usually killed. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. Apart from such the external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And so on the one hand, Paul had present sufferings. But on the the right side, the other side of the scale, the apostle Paul had a great prospect. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he wrote, the same apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We, friends, we who suffer, and that's everybody, we should realize that our present sufferings are far outweighed by our future rewards. Secondly, we should realize that the creation will be freed from its futile slavery to corruption. The creation will be freed from its futile slavery to corruption. I see that in our passage in verses 19 to 22. See it with me. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. When we suffer, we need to remember that creation itself will be freed 
from its futile slavery to corruption. Revolution, revolution, it is a revolution in Revelation. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3, the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. After this, earth and heaven are incinerated by great heat. Revelation 22, 1 to 3, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. Oh, yes, we should realize when we suffer that the creation one day will be freed from its futile slavery to corruption. But there's a third point under our first point. We should also realize that we Christians will be freed from our fallen sin natures, otherwise known as our flesh. Remember, our flesh is our bodies coupled with our personalities, intellect, emotion, and will, our soul, that is on the wavelength of the law of sin and death and only can be overridden to know victorious Christian living when our enlivened spirit has the Holy Spirit controlling from the spirit to the soul to the body. That's our flesh is the soul and the body working in concert without the control of the Holy Spirit. But one day, although we battle flesh constantly every day now, we must realize that we Christians will be freed from our fallen sin natures, also known as our flesh. And I see that in verses 23 through 25 of Romans 8. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? 25. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Yes, one day we should realize that one day we Christians will be freed from our fallen natures, also known as our flesh. That's going to be a great day. So, we regroup. Do we all suffer? Definitely. Is there any comfort available for our suffering? Definitely. And what does the comfort look like? It looks like knowing the sure prospect of glory by realizing that our personal sufferings are outweighed by our future rewards and by realizing that creation will be set free from its corruption and by realizing that we who know Jesus will one day be set free from the traitor within us, our flesh. But there's more. More help for coping with our sufferings, Roman numeral two in your outlines this evening. When we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure intercessory prayer of the Holy Spirit. When we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure intercessory prayer of the Holy Spirit. I see this amazing, encouraging fact in verses 26 and 27. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is amazing. That is God praying for you. That is God praying for each of us. That is amazing. That is amazing. And look what the God, the Holy Spirit, prays for you. First, number one, the Spirit of God prays for our ultimate deliverance from our flesh. The Spirit of God anticipates our ultimate deliverance from our flesh and prays for that deliverance. In verse 23, and not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So in the first place, the Spirit of God prays for you that you will have the ultimate deliverance from your flesh that God has promised. Second, what does the Holy Spirit pray for you? The Spirit of God also prays for you that your patient endurance will take place in the meanwhile. That your patient endurance will take place in the meanwhile. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait patiently for it. We wait patiently for it. With perseverance, we wait patiently for it. The second thing God prays for you is that you will patiently endure until you're delivered from your flesh. Number three, God the Spirit also prays for our increasing conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. God prays for you that you will increasingly be conformed to the image of Jesus. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Spirit of God is praying for you that increasingly you would be conformed to look like Jesus. It's amazing. Now, wouldn't it make sense that if God himself is praying for you, that God himself's prayers for you would be effective? Absolutely. And wouldn't it make further sense to you that if God prays for you, that those prayers are always according to the will of God? Of course. Now, just before we move off the startling and blessed truth that God actually prays for us, I want to present to you two theological truths. There may be some who are thinking tonight, I have an objection to that. The two theological truths I very quickly want to present at this point when we're seeing that God the Holy Spirit prays for us. Number one, the Holy Spirit praying no more makes him inferior to God the Father and to God the Son than Jesus Christ praying makes him inferior to God the Father or to God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is co-equal, co-eternal member of the Trinity, the triunity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, very God. The Spirit of God is not inferior to God the Son, nor to God the Father by praying for you. Any more than Jesus Christ is inferior to God the Father or to uh, God the Son when he prays for us. 
Second theological truth, because scripture also assures us that the Lord Jesus prays for us. So it's, the beautiful thing is that two persons of the Holy Trinity are praying for you all the time. God the Holy Spirit, Romans 8. God the Son, Jesus Christ, equally always praying for you, Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. But former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ, after resurrection, always lives to make intercession for you. Let that drink in. Jesus Christ eternally lives to pray for you. How does it get better than that? That the Holy Spirit would pray for you. That God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would pray for you. It is staggeringly good. So let's do a real quick review. Romans 8, 18 to 30, present three things that we can take comfort in when we suffer, and we will suffer. First, we've seen that when we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure prospect of glory. That's verses 18 to 25. And second, when we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure intercessory prayer of the Holy Spirit. That is verses 26 to 27. Our third and final point tonight in this passage, Roman numeral three in your outlines, when we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure providence of God. When we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure providence of God. Verses 18 to uh, Verses 28, excuse me, to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Will you notice in verse 28, as we consider the sure providence of God, that God has one purpose for each and every one of his children by faith in the world, of faith in Christ? He has one purpose. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's singular. What is the purpose? We had best know since each one of us who knows Christ has the same purpose. For whom, whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, this is it, you underline your Bibles, this is where to underline, to become conformed to the image of his son. That's God's purpose for us. 
that each one of us would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Put another way, God's purpose for you is that you will will look more like Jesus than you did yesterday, but not as much like Jesus as you will tomorrow. These, of course, uh, 28 to 30, are some of the most well-known verses in the Bible and most beloved verses in the whole Bible. But when we say we can take comfort when we suffer in the sure providence of God, what is providence? That's not a, a word we use perhaps very often. What is providence? James Montgomery Boyce gives us a definition of providence, and I quote, providence means that God has not abandoned the world that he created, but rather works within that creation to manage all things according to the immutable counsel of his own will. This is saying that God as creator didn't take his hands off of his creation to just watch it, but rather God as creator continues to work within his creation to bring to pass everything in his unchanging plan that's in accordance with his perfect will. That includes your life. Providence means that your life is part of God's creation. And as such, your life is seeing all of its details managed by God to the completion, to the accomplishment of the plan of God's will for you and all the people you interact with. And God has that for each and every person on earth. It's a big God. And when you suffer, you can take comfort in the sure providence of God, that God is conducting the orchestra of the universe, but equally precious that God is controlling and conducting the orchestra of your life and everything that happens in it. All afternoon, Johnny tried to put together his puzzle picture birthday gift from his dad. But try as he would, nothing came of it. Some of the pieces were bright and some were dark and some seemed to fit nowhere. Finally, in frustration, he gathered the whole mixture into the box and gave it to his dad. I can't do it, he explained. You try it. Of course, father assembled it in a few minutes. You see, he said, I knew what the picture was like all the time. I saw the picture in the puzzle. You saw only the pieces. We are told that all things work together for good. Those are the pieces. To those who are called according to God's purpose, that's the picture. Whether or not we let God assemble the pieces determines whether it shall be a picture or only a puzzle. Are you perplexed and frustrated over this event or that happening in your life? Do not take it out of God the Father's hand to work it for your design. God saw the picture from the start, and you don't see it yet and won't until it's finished. When we suffer, we can take comfort in the providence of God that God is conducting the orchestra of the whole universe. But to be more personal, we can take comfort in God's providence that he's conducting the orchestra of your life. 
with its relationships, with its challenges, with its fears, with its possibilities, your job, your marriage, your children, your city, your country. God is conducting the orchestra of it all. And we can take great comfort in the providence of God. And we are noting that when we suffer, we can take comfort in the sure providence of God. But what does that look like? You say, Pastor Rob, I want to take comfort in the providence of God. I want to understand how to take comfort that God is orchestrating the universe. I want to better understand what it looks like for me to take comfort in God being seen as the orchestrator of my life. How does it look? What do you do? Well, the passage helps us. Taking comfort in the sure providence of God looks like five things. Knowing, seeing, interpreting, cooperating, and relaxing. Knowing, seeing, interpreting, cooperating, and relaxing. Knowing, seeing, interpreting, cooperating, and relaxing. Let's take them one by one. We know of God's providence by Scripture's revelation of it. We know that God is providential because the scriptures reveal it. In verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When the Bible says you can know, then you can know. (laughs) Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We know of God's providence because the scriptures reveal it to us. Number two, we not only know of God's providence, we see God's providence in all of, not some of, our life events. We see God's providence, his conducting of the orchestra, we see it in all and not some of our lives' events. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We see God's providence in all of and not in some of our life events. The Daily Bread writer writes, I read a story about a shipwreck. When the sole survivor reached a small uninhabited island, he prayed for God to rescue him, but help didn't come. Eventually, he built a hut out of driftwood for protection from the elements, and one day he returned from scavenging for food and found his hut was in flames, the smoke rising into the sky. Angrily, he cried, God, how could you do this to me? The next morning, he was awakened by rescuers. How did you know I was here? He asked. We saw your smoke signal. Pastor Lud Goltz, who I quoted to begin this sermon, sometimes God's love almost seems like hatred because of the difficulties allows to come our way. The final result, however, always confirms his true nature. The next time that it seems that your last hope has gone up in smoke, remember what we know to be true. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What does it look like to acknowledge the providence of God and thereby be comforted in our suffering? 
It looks like knowing the providence of God because it's revealed in the Word. It looks like seeing the providence of God in all the events of our lives, the good and the bad. And third, and third, it looks like interpreting the happenings of our lives in the light of the fact of God's providence. Delivering to us the highest good, tailor-made for each one of us. You can interpret your sufferings. That God has allowed them because he is a God of providence, a master conductor of the orchestra of your life, and he is in the process of all that you're experiencing, delivering to you the highest good, which is tailor-made for each one of us. Tailor-made for you. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so we are to know God's providence. We are to see God's providence. We are to interpret God's providence. Fourth, we are to cooperate with the Lord knowing that his providential goal is exactly the same for all of us, namely Christ-likeness. Let me pick it up, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I mentioned before that singular purpose, a one-size-fits-all purpose. And what is the purpose? Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's God's purpose. That's why you're on earth, to be conformed to the image of his son. It's that simple and it's that challenging. And so we cooperate with the Lord during our times of suffering, knowing that his providential goal, ambition, endpoint is exactly the same for all of us, making us to look more like Jesus. Because one day when we see Jesus face to face, either through the rapture of the church or through physical death, we will be made to be like him. That's our destiny. I don't know in the Bahamas if you ever see television footage of the Winter Carnival in Quebec, Canada. And the Winter Carnival in Quebec is an annual celebration of winter and all winter sports and winter foods and all these things. And part of the celebration of the Winter Carnival in Quebec, Canada, is that there are huge, massive blocks of ice that are delivered to the promenade of the city. And they're spaced apart, and ice sculptors come and work on sculpting the ice. How do you sculpt ice? With a chainsaw. And these artisans start up their chainsaws, and they start hacking away the block of ice, and they make magnificent ice sculptures of Canada geese in full flight with all of the details of their feathers in the ice. It's magnificent. Somebody was watching such a ice sculptor work his wonders on that block of ice with a chainsaw and a pick and a mallet. And he said, how in the world do you make a Canada goose in full flight out of a block of ice? And the man simply turned to him and said, by chipping away everything that doesn't look like a Canada goose in flight. God is chipping off of you and me everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And sometimes it takes suffering. But that's his purpose. 
He is not purposeless. He is not random. He is not scattered. He is focused with a laser beam focus that in love and grace, he is wanting to conform you and me and all of us to be like Jesus. And so because we can, in our suffering, because we can take comfort in the sure providence of God that he's the conducting, uh, the conductor of the universe and also the conductor of our individual lives, we can take comfort in the fact that we can know his providence, we can see his providence, we can interpret his providence, we can cooperate with his providence of making us like Jesus, and last, we can relax in his providence. We can relax in the truth that God's providential workings in our lives will definitely result in each of us actually ultimately becoming Christ-like. We can relax. On the men's retreat, Brother Nathan, Nathaniel Edgecombe was my shadow and taught me how to play dominoes. And we won a few games because he knows exactly what he's doing and I had no clue. I would point to a domino player and look at Nathaniel and go, and he'd go. Or he'd go. <laughs> the men's retreat was was a great thing. We never did this as men on the retreat. We played dominoes quite a bit, but we never lined all the dominoes up in a serpentine arrangement like I used to do when I didn't know how to play dominoes. The only thing I knew to do with domino players before I learned on the men's retreat was to line them up close to each other on their ends and make a serpentine arrangement, and then guess what? I'd hit the first one. I love that. You hit the first domino, if they're lined up right, every other domino knocks off. That's God's providential help. You can, you can relax. You can relax. Look at the dominoes here. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Watch the dominoes. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's the dominoes. And it all starts with God and finishes with God. It starts with God in verse 29. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you to salvation in Christ. He justified you. And he glorified you. Wait a minute. We are still on earth. We haven't died and seen Jesus. We're not fully glorified, but it is such a certainty that the last domino will be knocked off is that it's presented in God's word as a past tense completed. Your glorification you being made to be like Jesus Christ is so certain that God the Holy Spirit put it as a past tense in Romans 8, verse 30. So relax. He's got it. He will finish what he starts. He will bring you to full conformity to the image of Jesus, and you'll be able to stand before God blameless, Jude 24 and 25. It's like I'm a baseball fan. And uh, on Wednesday, my team, the Toronto Blue Jays, were in a nail-biter game five, winner-takes-all baseball game with the Texas Rangers. And I had to step away from the game. And I uh, didn't know how it was going. turned out that Toronto won an incredibly exciting finish, a 
three-run homer in their home stadium going crazy, 50,000 people cheering. You know, if I had that game DVD recorded and I knew the outcome, I'd have no sweat watching the DVD recording. I knew they won. We have a DVD recording. With all we suffer, we win. We get to be like Jesus. And that's good enough for me. We get to be with Jesus. That also is good enough for me. We suffer. He did too. Jesus was homeless. Jesus was rejected by his closest family. Jesus had no earthly belongings. All the earthly belongings Jesus owned were gambled for at his cross. Jesus had the Father turn his back, literal figurative back on him on the cross while he bore our sins. Jesus suffered. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when they wouldn't repent. Jesus suffered. He understands our suffering. The providence of God we're seeing in this passage is so comforting that God who loves us to the point of the cross provides the details for our lives to the end that all of the details of our lives are going to add up to the highest good possible for us and to methodically sculpting everything off of us that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. Jude 24 and 25 I referenced. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let it be so. Amen. Professor E.C. Caldwell ended his lecture tomorrow. He said to his class of seminary students, I will be teaching on Romans 8. So tonight, as you study, pay special attention to verse 28. Notice what this verse truly says and what it doesn't say. Then he added one final word before I dismiss you. Whatever happens in all the years to come, remember Romans 8, verse 28, will always hold true. That same day, Dr. Caldwell and his wife met with a tragic car train accident. She was killed instantly, and he was crippled permanently. Months later, Professor Caldwell returned to his students who clearly remembered his last words. The room was hushed as he began his lecture. Romans 8. 28 still holds true. One day we shall see God's good even in this. Randy Alcorn has written a book on heaven that I commend for your consideration. Randy Alcorn, in a book he has co-authored with his wife, Nancy, offers some insights on Romans 8.28. He quotes the New American Standard Bible translation of this verse, God causes all things to work together for good. Randy points out that it doesn't say each individual thing is good, but that God works them together for good. Recalling his boyhood days, Randy tells how he often watched his mother bake cakes. One day when she had all the ingredients set out, flour, sugar, baking powder, raw egg, vanilla, he sneaked a taste of each one. 
except for the sugar, they all tasted horrible. Then his mother stirred them together and put the batter in the oven. It didn't make sense to me, he recalls, that the combination of individually distasteful things produced such a tasty product. Randy concludes that God likewise takes all the undesirable stresses in our lives, mixes them together, puts them under the heat of crisis, and produces a perfect result. It's good. The Old Testament prophet named Jonah suffered. He was the most reluctant missionary to some vicious Gentiles. Jonah didn't handle his or interpret his suffering well at all. There was something that became ugly about his pouting when he was in pain. Uh, You probably don't have much sympathy for a person who rejects proven relief from pain that is offered. It just isn't right to insist on your own way when there's a better way given to you to get through suffering and you don't take it. Jonah did all three. Jonah pouted, he rejected proven relief, and he insisted on his own inferior way. You would know the story. He was sent to the Assyrians. Assyrians were vicious people. He didn't want to get in on the mercy and grace of God. They lived in Nineveh, a metropolis city, 60 miles in circumference. That's a big city by today's standards. He delivered an eight-word sermon from God. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he said. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. A massive revival took place. And these vicious Ninevites, these vicious Assyrians, came to faith in God. It'd be like ISIS. They were feared like ISIS is now. Jonah was happy, right? Oh, no. Jonah got angry. Jonah got depressed over God's graciousness, over God's compassion, and he asked to die got suicidal ideas. So God sent him a gourd that grew up overnight and gave him shade as he pouted. He was happy about the gourd. God sent a worm to eat the gourd. Then he wanted to die again. He said, lost my gourd to kill me. The book closes with God stating to his rebellious, pouty, prophet Jonah, that there are over 120,000 small children in Nineveh that don't know their right hand from their left. I take that to mean the children were so young they didn't know right from wrong. We would say they were younger than the age of accountability. God says to his prophet, there's over 120,000 little children in Nineveh. Do you know what that means? That means conservatively there were 600,000 people of other ages in that big city. So much of Jonah's suffering was self-inflicted. It came because of his own sinful choices. He pouted over God giving grace to the Ninevites, and that was truly ugly. He rejected obedience, and then he rejected the notion of God's will for the Ninevites, including a grace-based salvation of the Ninevites. That was selfish. He insisted on running away and then on complaining and questioning God's will, and that was counterproductive. Do you know what? I confess before you tonight, there's a lot of Jonah in me. Maybe there's a lot of Jonah in you. I may not know half or maybe any of the sufferings that you face right now, but I do know this. That number one, your Lord is going to bring you to glorification if you're saved. And I also know that your Holy Spirit is praying for you 
in all the times of your sufferings. And third, I know that our unchanging God's involvement, orchestration, providence in your life is ongoing. And so because of these things, we don't pout in our pain. We choose not to be ugly sufferers. And we don't reject proven divine relief in our pain either. We choose to receive God's offered comfort. And we don't insist on our own inferior ways. We choose to cooperate with God in his work of making us like Jesus Christ. How can we cope with suffering? Romans 8, 18 to 30, by taking comfort in the sure prospect of glory. Maybe you could remember it this way, BTC, BTC. Let's rework the acronym to be better to come, BTC, better to come, better is to come better to come, BTC. We take comfort in the sure prospect of glory, BTC. We take comfort in the sure intercessory prayer of the Holy Spirit, God is praying for you. We take comfort in the sure providence of God, God is conducting the orchestra. And so these are God's proven reliefs for us in our pain, so we ought to accept them. These are the Lord's vastly superior ways to see us through suffering. We ought to choose them. And still by way of review, future reward far outweighs present sufferings. BTC, better to come. Creation will eventually be freed from its slavery to corruption. That's the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. We eventually ourselves will be freed from the current slavery to our flesh. And the Holy Spirit prays for our ultimate deliverance from our flesh. God is praying for you. The Holy Spirit prays for our patient endurance until that ultimate deliverance from our flesh. The Holy Spirit prays for our increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We know of God's providence from Scripture. We see God's providence in all the events of our lives. We interpret the happenings of our lives in the light of God's promised, highest, tailor-made good for us as the God of providence. We cooperate with the Lord as he moves all of us to the same wonderful endpoint of being like Jesus, the ice sculpting with the chainsaw. We, rec- we relax in the fact that God will certainly make us all to be like Christ. The dominoes are set up on the board by the conductor of the universe and of your life, and they're set up that he's knocked over the first domino, and all the dominoes will fall over eventually, and you will be like Jesus. And we do not suffer like Jonah did. We choose better. Remember I talked about Billy Bryan, his daddy who suicided in the psychiatric hospital? Billy Bryan chose better. He was only four when his daddy ran through the plate glass window at the psychiatric hospital's sixth floor to his death. What happened to him? What happened to Billy? Did he ever get beyond his traumatic loss? Did he ever go beyond the chainsaw sculpting of God the Holy Spirit as a tender boy? 
Yeah, he did. Billy got saved. He trained for pastoral ministry. He pastored a couple of churches. He joined the Dallas Seminary faculty as the seminary's chaplain. That's how I knew him. And over 25 years, the dominoes on Chaplain Bill's board were all set up by God. And over 25 years, Chaplain Bill has interpreted his own sufferings, and he has helped literally tens of thousands of seminary students going into pastoral ministry to interpret their sufferings too. Then do you know what? The tens of thousands of Dallas Seminary trained pastors have gone out into the whole wide world as pastors and missionaries and authors to help literally millions of people to biblically interpret their suffering. That's how it works. And so you have people in your life and I have people in my life who are acquainted that we are suffering. And as we put these principles into practice, believing in God's providence and all the future hope we have, they will see how to process their suffering by seeing how, by God's grace, we process our suffering. And many, many people will be blessed to understand how to suffer in the will of God for the glory of God. Will you stand with me?